With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times, and this is View From My Sofa, the podcast where every week I sit down with the stars of TV to talk about all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? Expect fascinating insights into my celebrity guests' TV habits. What shows do they binge? What do they snack on? What do they loathe? And who really controls the remote on their sofa? This week's guest is the face of Channel 4 News, journalist Krishnan Guru Murphy. In this episode, Krishnan talks to me about how watching Skies This England took him back to the anxieties of COVID and when his 86-year-old father caught the virus, how his gig on Newsround shaped the journalist he is today and how he almost starred in a film with Twiggy. Krishnan, welcome to View From My Sofa. Thank you very much. I'm not on my sofa, though. I'm on my chair. I know, in your very, very impressive setup, which hopefully people can see on socials later. Talk me through what is the view from your sofa and your living room setup? Uh, it's next door to this room where I'm sitting, and it's where we veg out in the evening, and it's a leather sofa that I bought in Selfridges um, many, many years ago, and it's the only time I've met Noel Gallagher, actually, because he was also buying a sofa um, in Selfridges at the same time. Um, it was just before I got married, and we've just got a big screen. I know it's quite tacky having a big screen in your living room, but um, but uh, I, I kind of I I figure you have to have one. So, in fact, it's not really big enough because I've only got a forty-two inch plasma screen, and I really want a sixty. <laughs> and make it really tacky but um but yeah I mean it's 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 very straightforward it's next to my kitchen and it's where I watch telly what have you been enjoying recently on telly I mean look to be honest the news has been so insane for the last well couple of years that I haven't watched a lot of normal tv yeah um you know w- when I'm at home I watch 
the news because I have to. And then I watch a lot of drama and movies. And in fact, to be honest, more now TV drama than movies, mainly because my wife doesn't have the patience to sit down with me for two hours and watch a whole movie. So we'll tend to watch an episode or an episode and a half of something if we sit down. And, um, and so sort of normal TV, you know, sort of factual entertainment, as, as it's called technically, doesn't really get a lot of time unless it's something that I kind of feel I ought to watch yeah. because it's the zeitgeist at the moment or people are talking about it or I kind of ought to be across it because I might end up interviewing somebody about it. So mainly it's kind of it's get home from, I mean, I get home from work at about nine um and so there's maybe you know time for an episode of stranger things or whatever it might be um that we are into at the moment i saw on twitter that you'd recently watched this england and i'd heard a lot about it so i went and watched the first episode ahead of this interview what were your thoughts i found this england quite distressing to watch and quite triggering to be honest and i don't know whether it was too soon for me but it was a combination of fury, <laughs> I think, at the, at, the, at the politics of it um, and all the people who got things wrong and, you know, made mistakes and Dominic Cummings' visit to Barnard Castle and all of that. Um, and, um, and stress, you know, just stre- the stress of coronavirus, I think, is something that we haven't really processed. And that feeling of just kind of being stressed, watching this stuff, watching the images from care homes and hospitals and um, how worrying it all was, I think I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that feeling in a way and it kind of brought it all back. Um, and there were, there were sort of moments... My, my dad got coronavirus almost at the same time as Boris Johnson uh, and he's a doctor and he, he, he almost certainly caught it in hospital um, working and um, there's a sequence in this England about who will get treatment and who will get into hospital and I remember acutely worrying about whether dad who was 87 at the time um, or 86 maybe would get into the acute treatment or would he be one of the people left in the normal wards to die effectively so when he was ill and he was he was quite ill and we were thinking oh you know is he's 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 sort of on the cusp of having to go to hospital and we were really really worried that we might not see him again so that's um and he didn't go into hospital in the end he turned the corner and he, and he got better but um so all of those feelings came flooding back and i wasn't really prepared for it to be honest so um so no I found I found it sort of quite a weird experience a very involving one and I stuck with it not because I was enjoying it but because I thought well I better I better just kind of see this one through and it, it gets less triggering I think as you go along and so by the end of the series it concentrates on the politics and and, and that's easier to process yeah I think I had exactly the same thing that you're talking about when I started watching I said I I found myself biting my nails and I thought what why are you feeling worried or or anxious and and it's like you say you know it's it's so in the aftermath of what's just happened and I think you know in some ways we feel very far away from it you know we're not in a lockdown anymore but we still have that that fear that lasted for for two years of what's going to happen next who could be affected are my loved ones safe and you're right I just felt uneasy but also 
very sucked in. It was almost like I couldn't stop watching. Yeah, no, I mean, I didn't, I, I, I sort of slightly subjected myself to it. But my, my, my editor, um, Esme, had told me how she was loving it and was gripped to it. And I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I was gripped by it, but it, it was slightly, um, you know, I, I, did, I wanted to stick with it to see what they did with it and, and what happened, but I don't think I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you loathe on the box that you just have to turn off if it comes on? No, I don't don't think I loathe things anymore. I mean, um, you know, you just don't watch. If some, you know, there's all sorts of stuff I'm not, I'm not interested in, and so you just don't watch. Funnily enough, given how we watch a lot of drama series, um, the thing that I kind of have stopped watching completely, I think, is any kind of soap. And I haven't watched soap for a long, long time, but um, but I certainly did when I was a kid and when I was a student. Um, and maybe, you know, as a young adult as well, you know, Brookside and EastEnders. And, uh, you know, I've had little phases of being into those things. Um, and so if 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 it would be on, then you might just watch a bit of it. But um, I, I just don't bother with them at all now. Um, and I don't know whether that's because drama series um, production values have become so high and um, that there's a, there's a more of a marked gap, I think, between them and soap. You know, maybe I'm overthinking it. But um, but anyway, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't watch that at all. In your household, who controls the remote? My wife always controls the remote, <laughs> even though she may not always hold it in her hand. She will quite often say, if we're watching something, she'll say, put on an episode. And I'll go, well, why don't you put on an episode? You've got the remote control. And, uh, and she'll say, no, you do it. And so she makes me sort of go through the rigmarole of finding whichever app we're using and finding the episode and putting it on so so she is always in control and then once i've put it on i have to hand the remote control back to my wife so that she can then control the volume um or the pause button if one of us gets up and down so yeah i think without doubt i'm never in control although i might just be the sort of the technician who presses the buttons i love unreported world do your children or family watch you on the news or an unreported world i mean my wife has always watched you know, when she can and and would always be a sort of a a good critic or test of what I'm doing. Particularly with Unreported World, I think she will have watched every Unreported World I've done. My kids, who are now 17 and 15, increasingly watch what I do, but as kids they didn't really and they were not really interested in the news or bothered by the news. I think in reality, it's very common for TV journalist kids. You know, you, you, they sort of kick against it, and, and they're so used to you being on TV um, that it's not a it's not a thing. It's not a it's not a thing they're impressed by. Mm. So they're not bothered about seeing you doing anything. But I think it sinks in subconsciously or by osmosis. You know, the interest and the conversation that's going on around them. My whole family is very into the news and political, and my sister's. My sister works for the BBC as a journalist and my brother has worked in politics and the civil service and my brother-in-law worked for Tony Blair. And so politics has always been around. Um, mm. And so I think they're more they're more and more interested in what I'm doing in the news and on Unreported World. And um, so, yeah, I think they will now watch. And um, I suppose I used to always think when they didn't watch, you know, sort of, don't, don't you care? You know, don't you care about what's going on in the world? And, and of course they do. It's just different stages of life. And and now, um, particularly with my 15-year-old, who's sort of going through a real sort of, I think, period of 
thinking about the world. Um, you know, he's very struck by what he sees me doing and other people doing mm. on the news and will talk to me about it. And Unreported World is a particularly good one because it is literally stories you don't see anywhere else. Yeah. So it is eye-opening and shocking. And so, you know, even if we do something, as I did recently, about homelessness in New York, which you would think, well, that's not particularly unreported. In fact, it is. You know, there are, you know, sometimes things are right under your nose and we don't really bother looking at them in any great detail. Let's turn back time now and... Go back to your childhood. So you were born in Liverpool in the 70s and then moved to a village outside Burnley in Lancashire. What is your first TV memory? Um, if I think back to childhood, I mean, my TV memories are all sort of cop shows. And um, I think that's what I was massively into. Um, and we used to, you know, I used to play um, Cops and Robbers. Um, so I, I think probably my first TV memories are, um, you know, Z cars, um, which funnily enough, I don't really remember the, the plot lines to, but I, you know, I remember being massively into the music and, and in, and into the police cars. I used to love police cars when I was little, you know, when I was three or four. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I used to call them D-dars um, <laughs> because they went D-dar, D-dar. Um, and so, and I think, I think that I got that from Z cars. So I think that's probably my first vague TV memory. Um, but then after that, it's probably sort of other, other, other cop shows when I was a little bit older. That, that, and, that and Captain Pugwash, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think I remember Captain Pugwash as a kid, sort of as, as a very, very early memory as well. Um, which again was a show I didn't particularly like because I don't think you really understand Captain Pugwash until you're a teenager. Um, and and this will be very mysterious for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about. But it was a sort of it was a, it was a it was a it was a show ostensibly for little kids that was really for grown ups. <laughs> um, and. Um, and you, you get all the innuendo and the comedy when you're a bit older. What were you like as a child? And was TV kind of a family affair? Um, I mean, I think if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, then there were always sort of family things about TV. The TV was very much the centre of, you know, the living room. Um, and, you know, I remember getting the first colour TV that we got and it was incredibly exciting. And so... It was definitely a part of family life. But I don't really remember watching shows as a family, mm. in, in truth. Um, I remember there were different shows. So, so my dad was massively into comedy, and he, he, he would, I would watch comedy shows with him. So The Two Ronnies, It Ain't Half Hot Mum, Some Mothers Do Have Them. I really remember watching those shows with my dad, and sometimes my mum as well, but mostly my dad. And, I, and obviously I would watch very little kids shows when I was very, very young with my mum. Mm. But I don't really remember us all sort of being congregated around the sofa around a single show, you know, particularly when I was growing up. Um, but it was definitely a family thing. And um, it was on all the time, really. I mean, I was sort of, I was, I was definitely in that generation of people who, we were, you know, you were a child with TV, and the TV was kind of on a lot, and you know, um, you would catch things and catch things that your parents were watching or that your sister was watching or whatever it might be, and it just became part of popular culture and what was going on in, you know, what was going into your head. 
Yeah. As a child, I heard that you were into drama. So I wonder if you had ever dreamed of becoming an actor. I mean, obviously now you're on screen, but did you have a kind of burning desire to be a actor rather than perhaps a newsreader? Was that your first kind of on-screen dream? (laughs) I never had on-screen dreams. I mean, I never thought I was going to be on TV and I never thought any of that was available to me, you know, that that was something I don't, you know, how did, how did people become TV presenters or actors or anything like that? I have no idea. And it was never part of our vocabulary. We never talked about it at school. We used to have those career lessons at school in which they would put all the things you're interested in into a computer and it would print out some piece of paper saying you should be either a bricklayer or a lawyer. Um, And um, so no, I mean, but when I was a teenager, all of this suddenly became possible. TV became possible first, funnily enough, in that I did a lot of school debating. And when I was about 15, I got invited onto a TV show because of a debating competition I had done. This program called Open to Question, made by the BBC, used to invite about 60 or 70 teenagers to a studio to question a public figure. And they used to recruit those kids from all sorts of different you know, sources, sometimes they would just ring schools and say, send us 10 people. But one of the sources of kids was the Observer debating competition. Um, And so they would ring the Observer and say, who were the, you know, the final 10 kids in that competition, which was a national schools competition. And they would ring us up and say, do you want to be on on the show? So I, I used to go up from between about the age of 15 to 18 to Glasgow, where it was made, did it about six or seven times. And and be part of the audience of this show. And so TV was sort of demystified first. But when I was 17, um, I was then approached, because I was also in the Manchester Youth Theatre and then later the National Youth Theatre, and I was approached by a casting agent who had gone to Manchester Youth Theatre and said, we are looking for an Indian actor, teenage actor, who can play the piano and roller skate. Um, And I could play the piano and skateboard, but I'd never been on roller skates. And so they said, oh, go and see Krishnan. And 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 so I was approached by this <clears throat> casting agent who was casting a feature film directed by John Schlesinger, who was a very famous director at the time, um, famous for Marathon Man. And it was going to be a movie with starring a, a, with Twiggy and Dame Peggy Ashcroft in the cast about a young Indian pianist and, and his... Um, piano teacher who was going to be Shirley MacLaine so it was this sort of star-studded cast and it was all a bit weird but I sort of I got down to the last two and was thinking well this is it I'm going to go off and be an actor and sod my A-levels and my mum and dad were really quite stressed about the whole thing and I went to meet the director and the musical director and do my sort of final audition and then I lost out to a very nice guy called Naveen Chowdhury who then went on to star in all sorts of things and, and funnily enough, ended up living very close to me in Notting Hill when we were much older. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So, I mean, you know, yes, I mean, I, I, I did end up having these dreams about TV and acting and all of those sorts of things, but really not totally by accident, really. I mean, you know, sort of freaky world, you know, living where I lived, we didn't know anyone who did any of that kind of thing. It wasn't really within your dreams. Which is crazy. I mean, we have to be thankful that you didn't get that part because otherwise we wouldn't have Christian Guma, the <laughs> journalist. Um, but I also, I wanted to take it back because that kind of sounds like a, a story of opportunity. And for listeners who don't know, as a teenager, you originally secured a place to study medicine, but during your gap year, started working with the BBC or, or had an internship and then changed direction and decided to pursue PP at Oxford whilst also during your entire studies working as a journalist. Just talk, talk me through what happened there and how that opportunity came about. That's just a very good summary, really. I mean, I, I had been doing this programme, Open to Question, as a member of the audience that I told you about. And in my year out, before going off to do medicine, which my, you know, my father's a doctor and my mum's dad had been a doctor, and it was very much part of, it was kind of really the only thing that was on my horizon as something that I could do. I was good at sciences and... Um, I, I I was always going to take a year out and wanted to travel and go to America and do all sorts of things like that in my year out. But but as I was taking um, that year out, I wrote to the BBC and said, I'm taking a year out. I was wondering, could I work for you as a researcher during my year out for a bit, do three months or something like that? And, and they said, no, we don't take on school leavers. Um, you know, you generally have to be a graduate. But if you want to come and do some work experience, you can. So I went for two weeks work experience to that department in Scotland that used to make Open to Question. And they were making a daytime TV show at the Glasgow Garden Festival. And so I worked on that for two weeks. And rather than a lot of work experience kids, I guess, who just come along and stand around and wait to be told what to do, I was firing and ideas and writing things up and saying why don't we do an item about this and taking part in the meetings and piping up and they must have been thinking who is this kid you know piping up in the meeting and but I was very much sort of I was just kind of thinking well you know you, you don't get these opportunities very much so you may as well just go for it and at the end of the two weeks the head of that department who had been watching me in these meetings took me aside and said well 
come for a walk with me. You know, what are your ambitions? Have you ever thought about working in the BBC? And I said, well, I mean, not really. I mean, I suppose, you know, I'm going to go off and do medicine. I suppose in an ideal world, it would be great to be a BBC trainee, but I don't think, you know, the chances of me ever getting on that are tiny. And he said, well, I want to audition you to take over as the presenter of Open to Question. And so he put me in a studio, auditioned me, in which I had to interview the previous presenter who was a guy called John Nicholson who was now a member of parliament for the SNP um, and a good friend and read some autocue's camera and he I came out of that studio and he said I'm going to offer you a two series contract to present open question in your year out um, and so that's how it happened and it was all very very odd and it was a week before my A-level results and where I suddenly had a had a TV show on BBC2 aged 18 and um so I did that for a year full time and then went to university and I stopped because funnily enough, that show got cancelled and went to Oxford. And But literally, I think the week before I started at university, I was offered another TV show on, on BBC Two made by the Asian Programs Unit. And they said, well, you could just drive up to Birmingham from Oxford once a week and come and do our studio. And if you want to give that a try, then you can. So I, I kept being uh, being offered these things all the way through college. I did a fashion series for ITV. I did, you know, quite a lot of current affairs. Um, and it was only, it was after two years of that, my college tutors basically said, this has got to stop. You're going to fail your degree. Um, you're going to have to quit. So I kind of stopped. So I went to everyone and I said, right, that's it. I've got to stop. I've got to do my degree. But again, just before the beginning of my third year, the editor of Newsround on BBC One called me up and said, I'm looking for a new presenter. Are you interested in coming to talk to me about it? Uh, so I went to see him, spent a day at Newsround, and he said, well, how about you work for us during your holidays and then you go full-time when you leave? So, so that's what happened. And I, you know, so I ended up working all the way through my degree course and having amazing opportunities as a result. That wasn't fate. That was just them crafting you a career in television. You didn't, you did, it seems like you didn't have an option, to be honest. No, I mean, I kept, you know, I was very, very lucky. I mean, I, I you know, I kept being offered opportunities based on what I had done before. Mm. And I didn't go and seek these things out. People, people were coming to me, I suppose, because I was so unusual at the time. You know, I was only, you know, I was 18, 19 mm. and able to do it. And so there weren't, you know, there weren't many people like me around. There wasn't anyone like me around, actually. And so, yeah, you know, pe people found it a bit intriguing and, and so offered me opportunities. And what was that like, your first experience on the job, on screen, and seeing yourself for the first time on screen? Did it all feel very natural to you? Yeah, it did, um, because I had seen myself on screen as a member of the audience in open to question since about the age of 15 so that wasn't the really weird thing I think the really weird thing was that I was doing it you know I was actually working at the BBC as a presenter I couldn't believe it to be honest and I just thought this is not going to last um this is just this is like a great ride uh and just jump you know jump on the train and ride it for as long as you possibly can and and then we'll see what happens then you can go off and do medicine or whatever it is that you end up doing and, and I had that confidence, I think, of being very, very young and thinking, well, I can do this. I've seen yeah. people. And people would say to me, what do you want to do? You know, um, 
and and I would say, or who you know, who would you like to be like? And I and I would say, David Dimbleby, because he was brilliant. You know, he, he was doing, you know, Panorama, um, and doing brilliant interviews. And and I, and I would look at him and, and say, well, I think I could do that. And um, and I had that confidence to say, well, I think I could do that, which you usually only have when you're eighteen or nineteen. <laughs> So that was a real help, I think, at the time. I didn't see, you know, I didn't see this as a sort of a really intimidating world. I just, you know, saw it as a great, fun ride, you know, access to power, access to politicians, access to celebrities, um, you know, that was really good fun and um, and not not that serious, you know. Yeah. I want to speak to you about working at Newsround and how that experience forged the journalist that you are today. And it must be quite a skill to be able to condense big topics into something that's accessible and understandable for young children. Yes, Newsround was the absolute formative experience for me in my journalism, and it still lives with me today, every day. It instilled in me the need to make your journalism accessible understandable to not assume too much knowledge Mm. and newsround in those days was actually watched by a very large adult audience it was on at five o'clock it was when lots of people were getting home from work Mm. so it was often the first news bulletin people would watch yeah um, when they got home from work and we used to get huge audiences you know you you, the the adult audience of newsround was bigger than the audience of breakfast time or news night or any of these sort of supposedly important grown-up programs you know it would be about half and half adults and kids so um but we were very clearly writing for kids and saying you, you must be able to put an eight-year-old in front of the TV and for them to understand what you're saying. So you would explain things like apartheid or um, communism or whatever it might be that you might w- were talking about. Um, and a lot of adults who didn't, in truth, understand the adult news because yeah. they hadn't followed the history or didn't know what all the terms were used to watch as well. And and so I kind of that that has always stuck with me, you know, that don't assume that people know everything. Don't assume that people know where Ukraine is. You know, yeah. have a map. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, all those sorts of things that are sort of really, really basic. You know, we would never ever do a story on Newsround without having a map. And it would be two maps. It would be a wide map to show the context of where the country was, and then it would zoom into a close-up map. I would do that always. I, I've never won the argument on Channel 4 News that we should do that. Because <laughs> they say, well, no, our, you know, our our um our viewers uh tend to know these things. But um and I think I think I've kind of gone from one extreme to the other over time. In that Newsround, Newsround's ethos was don't assume any knowledge. And I think of all the news programs, Channel Four News probably assumes the most. But I I still try and explain the news. You know, right now you know we're in the middle of an economic crisis. We've been talking about gilt markets and gilt yields and uh, all sorts of stuff that most people just don't understand. They hear those words and they tune out and they go, "I have no idea what they're talking about." So. Yeah always try and explain that stuff. I want to talk to you about um, Unreported World, now in more detail, which you joined in 2011. And you filmed episodes across Afghanistan, Cambodia, India, Iraq, South Africa, Yemen. What stories have you been the most interested in unpicking? So how do you choose the stories that you want to cover? I don't choose them. 
in, in truth. You could say I'm lazy when it comes to Unreported World and that I just wait to be told where to go. But I, in a way, that I, that's why I love Unreported World. Unreported World for me is a real luxury. It's where I get to step out of the daily slog of the news. I don't have to file every day. Um, I can immerse myself in something. But also the whole ethos of, of Unreported Worlds has always been a bit of a journey, and it's your journey of discovery. And so, and they and they didn't want originally me or the other presenters to, to know too much about that story before we got there because they wanted that sense of exploration, wonder, outrage, shock, whatever it might be. And, and to see the process of journalism on the ground that you go there you find something you go right well why is this going on i've got to go and talk to the person in charge and then and then if if that person isn't there then we'll go over there and and for that process of finding out the truth about something to unfold on tv so uh, I, and i'm curious about the whole world so i've i've generally sat back and gone where do you want me to go and they would always say, well, where would you like to go? Or where are you interested in? And I've told them, well, these are the countries I've never been to, <laughs> is what I said to them, you know. Um, and so I'd love to go to all of those places. And to be honest, Unreported World is a really, really difficult program to plan because um, when you're in faraway places or unstable countries, mm. things just fall over all the time. You yep. know, you make a plan, it, it gets screwed up. So quite often with Unreported World, I will think I'm going to El Salvador for about a month and then three days before or a week before, that story falls over and they say, no, you're going to, you know, South Africa. And so, so I, I don't, I, I almost deliberately don't get too immersed in the story before I leave um, because I know there's a good chance it will change. Um, and, and the point at which I kind of switch myself over from the news to unreported world, and it's a different way of thinking, it's, it's, it's much less immediate it's more inquiring investigative um interested in people um is when i get on the plane and, th and then i sit down with the director and we go through all the you know and, and, we, and i sit on the plane and then i really start thinking about it um and and that's that's going to sound terrible to a lot of people because they're going to say how unprepared <laughs> but um it's kind of that's my that's my experience of unreported world of making those shows and i think it's partly why they work really well because you get my sense of good god this is happening you know how is this happening tell me more about it yeah when we make them i wondered i watched yesterday the mexico beach episode where you go and there are lots of shootings and yeah that was very shocking as a viewer you see um horrific acts of violence which is is difficult to watch as someone at home watching on the television let alone for you and i wondered how do you switch off or protect yourself and, and do you have to create a hard line between krishna and the journalist and krishna and the person it's not something I do consciously. I'm sure it's something that happens subconsciously. Um, and I've been doing it for so long that it just happens naturally. That, yes, when you're in a situation, and Mexico is a good example of the whole process of unreported world, where we literally got picked up at the airport by our local journalist who we're working with, because we always work with somebody on the ground who knows the story and the language. And he, he heard about a shooting literally as we got into the car um so we didn't you know we didn't go to the hotel and check in or you know we just we just drove straight to the scene 
and it was a multiple shooting um and very very shocking imagery and you get there and of course you you you're there and you have to work out how to film this in a way that you could broadcast it because obviously you can't just point a camera at a scene and put that on the air because you have to think about what is acceptable at 7:30 or whenever the, your program is going out and so how do you film this in a way that can tell tell the story and reveal what's happened and reveal how shocking it is without making it so gratuitously violent that the regulations around TV won't allow you to broadcast it. So you're instantly in professional mode. You're not looking at it as a normal passerby. You're looking at it as a professional saying, right, how can I tell this story? And that's, I think that's always the case when you're in a very distressing situation that you, you know, you, you have to be there as a professional journalist. And so you're thinking, how do I tell this story? How do I get this person's voice across how do i convey the distress that they're in how do i un you know unfold the story so that always removes you one step from your normal human reaction yeah. to a very distressing situation and that may come out later that that'll come out in the bar um or when you get home or on the plane or and it depends on the story i mean uh, you know um a story like Mexico, which was essentially about um, mafia, extortion, and yeah. drugs, the victims on the whole were people in some way caught up. They were adults, um, or they were just ordinary business people. That, that's different to a story in a way like Yemen, which was a story about famine and about really about very young children, babies dying from hunger um which is much more obviously distressing and it reaches you very very quickly because you see your own children in every child that you see in that situation and so so i think thing that's harder to separate um but again you just do because you, you have to you, you know you, you don't have the time the luxury for a a human reaction really to what you're seeing you, you you know you're there for a week you're there or 10 days or whatever it might be and you've got to think right how do i tell this story so that other people can have the reaction it's 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 you know you are telling you're filming it so that the reaction that you would normally have is one that hopefully millions of viewers will have and that process keeps you protected i think yeah Many of your works has taken you to, as you say, unstable environments. Has there ever been a point that you thought this is too dangerous or perhaps you questioned if this was worth you being there in terms of you, Krishnan, or do you just have that journalistic instinct that you have to tell the story? No, because I would never go somewhere that I thought was too dangerous. Um, and we have a very rigorous process on Unreported World for risk assessing where we're going. Um, and it's thought through in very great detail in advance, um, and and it's tested by other, you know, by commissioning editors and a lawyer before we go anywhere for unreported world. We sit down with um, executive producers and the Channel Four lawyers, and we go through where it is we're going, what the risks are, what might happen, what we will do if that happens, what are the risks to the people we're filming. You know, if are, are they putting themselves in jeopardy by telling us their story? What would we do if 
such and such a scenario happened. It's a very detailed process. And so by the time you get there on the ground, most most scenarios have been thought about in some way. And we don't tend to go to, you know, the, the, the hot zone of a war. You know, the, if you're doing unreported world, we're not really there to be right on the front line on the whole. Um, where the shooting's going on. Um, you, you're more likely to be in the hospital or the refugee camp, or which are dangerous places, but but I'll, I'll remove from the immediate basic threat of being in a firefight or being bombed or whatever it might be. So no, I mean, you know, you're, you're, generally in a, you're generally in places where we've all thought about it. There's only, I think, you know, there, there's been one occasion where I've pulled the plug on a filming trip because we came under immediate threat. And it was a complicated scenario in Lebanon, and we 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 came under a direct threat from people we had been filming around, and so we had to leave. And you know that was just a very straightforward conversation, you know, straightforward conversation and process for me. It had now become we'd got enough to make the program, but it had now become too dangerous. If we stayed, there was a very high chance of us being kidnapped or killed, and so we had to leave straight away and literally just kind of drove drove away and pretty much went to the airport and left. So but that's only ever happened once in 30 years. I want to talk to you now about being Channel 4 News' lead anchor. So what pressures did you feel becoming the face of Channel 4 News? I don't think I, I, don't think I have felt pressure, to be honest, because I've been at Channel 4 News for so long. Um, it is just my life. I've been there for 24 years. And although for 23 of those, Jon Snow was the lead anchor, we were very much a team. Our jobs were very, very similar. And so nothing really has changed about what I do by virtue of being main anchor now. Um, it's just that I do a bit more of it. And, um, and I suppose there are scenarios in which I am, you know, on a, on a, on a big day, I'm going to be the person standing in Downing Street rather than John. But but quite often I would have been anyway, just because it was my turn that day, or I was on roster, or whatever it might be. So, um, so in truth, my job hasn't really changed that much, and how I feel about it. Um, and we are we are more of a team now, anyway, in that. You know, we are, you know, there's, there's four of us who are sort of the main presenting team and we've all got different areas of expertise. So um, I think also because the news has been so insane for the last year, um, it's been very hard to think, you know, you don't think about these things, you just get on with it. And and the news is odd at the moment in that we seem to just concentrate on one thing at a time mm. and... I, I don't know whether it's just the product of coronavirus that, you know, the news became totally single-story news and then Ukraine happened and we became single-story Ukraine and then politics and we're single-story politics. And so there's something odd that has happened to the news over the last couple of years where we seem less able to process three, four things at a time, which was always the the way a programme like Channel 4 News has worked, you know, that we would be in-depth, very engaged with three or four topics over yeah. a period of time. And so that, and that's changed at the moment. And so, I, you know, I don't know whether, you know, that, that's kind of, I spend more time thinking about the story. I, you know, waking up on my days off thinking, right, what's happened? 
than I do about anything else. Yeah. So, um, so I, d- I don't consciously worry about being the main anchor. It's it's a pretty natural progression for me, um, and, it, and it's something that happened over time anyway. Because John did less and less, and I did more and more um, over over years. So, it's been a pretty natural process. And you you mentioned it there, but I mean, even if we look at the last month of news, everything's changing. There's all different things going on, be it environmental, political. Obviously, we had the death of the Queen. How do you stay on top of the news? And like you say, on your days off, are you checking Twitter? Are you going to places? Or is it more of a team effort where you're talking and discussing and then you make your programme? It's both. I mean, the truth is, if you do the news, then you are across the news all the time, even on your days off. And you don't ever really switch off. Um, you don't stop reading what's going on. Um, but but also, you know, so much of what we do on Channel 4 News is team effort. It's coming in from specialist correspondents, experts, people who know much more than me about a particular topic. So it's very easy because you build up such a base of knowledge over years of doing it um, that to add in the particular detail of what's happened today becomes relatively easy. Because you you know all the background already. You don't need you know you start from such a, a sort of an informed position that when one of our specialists says oh they've done this or they've done that or they're announcing that, you understand what that means mm. pretty quickly. So um, it just becomes a natural process. And I think it's it's different to most other serious tv and that it's it is constant you know because the news is all year and constant it's just a a natural process it takes over your life it doesn't you know it means you can't ever really switch off or relax um but it's just the way it is i think if doctors have bedside manners what would you say your interview or journalistic manner is how would you describe it (laughs) it depends it really depends on the show i do i mean i i think i you know um and the kind of interview it is. I think if, you know, if it's a political interview, then I, I will quite, it will quite often be an interview that is holding somebody to account. And it might be quite tough, might be quite no nonsense. And, you know, it's, it's not a necessarily a kindly bedside manner <laughs> for politicians. But sometimes it will just be discursive and interested. And not every interview is a, is a bust up. You know, and it's you know a lot of political interviews are really about what do we think here? What 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 is the debate? What is the decision? How do you get to the truth? What's the process? And so, you know, they they can just be very mu- you know much more straightforward conversations. Um, then I do I do a lot of arts interviews. I do a lot of music. You know, musicians, rock stars, actors, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's me as a sort of enthusiast and as a fan and. Um, somebody who's very interested in people and and you know and and then if you're on unreported world or something like that you know most of your interviews are just with ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances telling you about their lives so your bedside manner is uh is much more gentle much slower much you know you're you're inviting people in to tell you about their lives so I don't have a bedside manner. It's I have you know I have very different approaches to very different interviews. 
from the culture side, we've had the Quentin Tarantino interview, the Robert Downey Jr. interview. How do you deal with interviews that don't go to plan? And do you think that's made you a thicker skinned journalist because of it? Interviews very rarely go to plan because, you know, you can think through what you think people are going to say, particularly with politicians and things like that. But with most other kinds of interviews, you you genuinely don't really know what the answer is. You're asking the question because you don't know what the the answer is. So if if by not going to plan you mean people getting angry or upset, I mean, I I think it's one of those things that it depends on the circumstances and the person and your level of experience at the time i mean i I think with with everything with the the notable ones that i look back on i would probably i would probably handle them slightly differently now years on to how i did then um i'm probably a bit better at um diffusing situations um than i than i was but but sometimes you know things go south not because of anything you've done it's just because of the person and their reaction to things and I look back at the vast majority of my interviews and kind of think yeah that was all right you know um you know you you can be hypercritical and you can always say well why didn't you say this and why didn't you do that and why didn't you you know why didn't you calm it down a different way or whatever it might be and then the interview would have carried on but um I think you just have to accept that things happen in a moment you react the way you react they they react the way they react it has an authenticity to it and um as long as you didn't make a terrible mistake then you just live with it okay i want to take you on now to our quiz i'm going to play you three theme tunes and then you're going to guess them if that's okay 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 this is number one That's Panorama. That is Panorama. One out of one. Classic, classic TV tune. Okay, this is number two. Blue Peter. (laughs) Yes. I've gone too easy. I've gone too easy. If you don't get this third one, I'll be riotous. Do you know what that one is? No, that was weird. That sounded a bit like the Newsround theme tune for a while, but um, it's, it's, it's not. It's the new one. Oh, I see. Okay, fine. That is the Newsround theme tune. Right, okay, good. That was a bit cruel of me, but um, I thought I'd, I'd test your knowledge. Um, okay, we have <laughs> a quick, quick fire round. Um, so just they're quick questions. First answer that comes to your mind. Dream interviewee. Vladimir Putin. Piece of work you're proudest of? Unreported world in Yemen. Running commentary or silent watching when you're watching telly? Silent watching. Guilty pleasure when you're watching TV? Alcohol or ice cream? Both. <laughs> <laughs> comfort TV. Comfort TV? Um, I don't think I have comfort TV. You're just too busy watching the news. Yeah. bless you well Krishnan thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much thank you very much thanks for listening to View From My Sofa with me Kellyanne Taylor if you like this episode make sure you share download and subscribe 
Next week, I'm joined by reality TV star turned documentary maker Zara McDermott to talk all things telly. Hold up. 